All right. So let's try that again. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. You know, except for the plague. Yeah. (laughs) Running rampant in my city right now. If that could just go away altogether, that would be great. Yeah. I I am. I am happy to be working from home again, though. Yeah. I like not having to change out of my pajamas. Yeah. I, I just would like to be able to go to PAX at the end of this year. Mm. Like, fingies crossed. I would even take a third booster if I needed to. Like, yeah. Give me, give me some more Moderna. Let's go. I'll deal with that bullshit again. (laughs) We're trying to decide. We're probably not going to, but the like, anime convention that's kind of big around us normally happens in the summer got Mm. canceled last year and then um it got postponed this year to october and i'm like "Mm, i don't know i guess see where things are then i mean yeah there's supposed to be another huge spike in october though that's what the Uh, cdc is projecting so it might just get canceled again too i uh i told aj i said even if the convention's not happening it might, might be nice just to go to philly yeah. Just to like just go to get somewhere. out. Yeah. I can't imagine it would be like if you're in a hotel, they probably have shit sorted out. Yeah. Do some food tourism. Yeah. His the Mooter is there. Like, yeah, I was gonna say go to the Mooter Museum. Yeah. I wanna go there so badly. That's why uh we took I took extra time off. So like the 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 convention is just for that weekend, but I took I'm off from Tuesday before to the Wednesday after. Oh, wow. Or the Thursday. No. It'll be Sometime Tuesday after. before to the next Saturday is when I would work again. The following uh-huh. Saturday. Because I work that two on, two off, two on, two off. So, yeah. I have plenty of time to go adventure and figure out. I think I think our hotel is up on that Wednesday, though. Or Tuesday. But either way. Yeah. But, yeah. That's my plan. Go there. Go check out some spoopy graves, maybe. Frankie's up there. My friend yeah. Ben. So, yeah. Sounds cool. Yeah, I've always, since I found out about the Muta Museum, I've always wanted to go. So maybe yep. when I we finally come out and visit you, we can take a little a weekend little trip. trip up to Philly or something. Yeah, it's only about a six-hour drive. I say not only, bad. and that doesn't, like, not bad. That doesn't bother me. No. But, I mean, we would have to stay and then go the next day and then probably leave. I wouldn't go up yeah. on six hours and then be like, no, oh, let's go to the museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway... Let's get the show on the road. Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss the strange and unusual. This is episode 77 of our series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Roya. And I am Casey pretentious yes this week (laughs) this week we we are going to be discussing some more unsolved mysteries join us perhaps you may even be able to help solve a mystery i doubt mine because i don't think the majority of people who were alive during mine you know are still alive (laughs) well look i that was just my that was just my nod to robert stack there (laughs) uh join us perhaps even you may be able to help solve a mystery I man, I love that show. It is good. Please don't sue us for using that, by the way. <laughs> I think they could only sue us if we actually used him. That's fair. That's and fair. I don't think we're on anyone's radar, so yeah. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> well, hey, uh, we should go over our social media. So if you guys would like to follow us online, 
We are on Twitter at underscore strange unusual on Facebook. If you just search for strange unusual podcast and on Instagram, if you search for strange underscore unusual underscore podcast, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash strange unusual, which we are working on right now, getting some extra new stuff to put up on there uh, in terms of special exclusive Patreon episodes. <laughs> oh my God. Look, I'm in a, I'm in a mood. today. Yeah. I was say you're in a mood today. <laughs> so, yeah, what are you talking about? Um, so I am talking about the uh, patron devil of jazz music. What? The Axeman of New Orleans. Oh hell yeah. You're on a New Orleans kick this week. I am. I didn't realize that until I was like working on my second set of notes and I was like, oh man, both episodes are, I'm mm-hmm. just trapping you all in New Orleans. Yep. <laughs> You know my favorite part of New Orleans? If I we could have done a New Orleans episode, I would have talked about the uh, the oven crips. Ooh, I do love the oven crib. Yeah, I didn't actually intend on doing two new two episodes in New Orleans back to back. Well, but it just worked out that way. <laughs> there's other things we can talk about there, so that is a, a oh, thing we sure. could do later. It's just maybe for a Mardi Gras. <laughs> oh, that's not a bad idea. I like that. It'd be the day after Mardi Gras, I guess. Like a whole year later. Yep. <laughs> All right, we'll see you in March and/or April for that episode, guys. Uh, anyway, I will be talking about the disappearance of Maura Murray. I'm not familiar with that. Well, boy howdy, it is twisty. You know, okay. when I when I was talking about uh, Brandon Swanson, there are two. There's Brandon Lawson and Brandon Swanson, and I can't remember which one I talked about, but. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, Brandon. This one has way more like theories, like people online actually trying to sleuth this out still. Uh-huh. Um, there, that documentary was just re- released in 2018 and she went to she went disappearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she went disappeared. <laughs> she died of a bullet injection. <laughs> she died of a bullet injection. Uh, she went missing in 2004. So it's been like 17 years and people are still talking about it. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think that there's something that about unsolved crimes that just gets people interested and everyone wants to solve a mystery. Perhaps even you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so who should go first? <laughs> I mean, mine's pretty rough. I assume yours is pretty rough. Mine, nobody, nobody for sure dies in mine. Oh, several people for sure die in mine. Well, then perhaps you should go ahead. All right, so we got some wee-woos. Because I started typing mine at the top of my yep, notes. So we got wee-woos for murder, racism, and jazz music. Jazz. The most dangerous of all. <laughs> the most wee-woo worthy. Hold on. Stevie's trying to get the <coughs> my, my beef jerky out of my bag. <laughs> oh my god, Jaja. So we got barbecue on Friday because I was just craving it. And every time... I have, like, started eating, like, my leftovers or anything. She's just like, hey, what you got? Hey, you want to give me some? Hey. Some of that. I know you just fed me twice, but uh, <laughs> how about I have some of that chopped beef brisket? That sounds <laughs> like, good to me. <laughs> I'm with you, Zsa-Zsa. She's even, like, sitting there, and she's just, like, sitting next to me, and then she's kind of, like, leaning on my little lap desk, and then her paw's reaching out and setting on the, the to-go container, like. <laughs> <laughs> like, excuse me, ma'am. I love you are those. not sly. I love those videos of cats that are like, I'm just sleeping, and then their paw like reaches out. <laughs> All right, so tell me dark, about the axe man. Dark shit. 
Yeah. Um, so beginning on May 23rd, 1918, a series of murders would rock New Orleans with their brutality and their mystery. Ooh. Joseph and his wife, Catherine, uh, Joseph Maggio and his wife, Catherine, were business owners, specifically a grocery store. They were found by Joseph's brothers with their throats slit with a street razor and their heads bashed in with an axe. Ooh. Catherine's head was nearly severed from her shoulders, but Joseph was still clinging to life. Joseph, unfortunately, only lived for a few more minutes after he was found by his brother. Brothers. A search of the premises was not completed by the police after the bodies were removed, but a bloody razor was found on the lawn of a neighbor. At first, they thought that clearly robbery had to have been the motive, but valuables that were in plain sight had not been taken by the attacker, even though the house had been ransacked bizarre more unusual still the razor actually belonged to andrew maggio the brother of joseph and one of the brothers that found joseph and Catherine. andrew had a barber shop we're trying to frame him yeah maybe andrew had a barber shop and an employee of his had told the police that andrew had taken the razor home a couple of days prior to have the blade honed Andrew also lived in an adjoining apartment to Joseph and Catherine and had discovered them roughly two hours after the attacks had occurred. And he did state that he had heard strange groaning through the wall but hadn't gone to check on it. Well, yeah, if you hear strange groaning in your brother's wall, you're probably thinking, he and his wife are getting busy. And it's also like, oh my gosh, Joseph held on for two hours before being discovered. yeah, Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, the the amount of resilience in this case of victims is really impressive to me. So Andrew had been out celebrating um, his departure to the Navy and returned home in kind of a drunken state. And that's why he said, like, he didn't really pay attention to any of the noises or anything weird going on because he was pretty out of it. Andrew remained the main suspect for quite some time, but was released when investigators were unable to find any direct evidence linking him to what happened. Oh, Interesting. You know who could have taken a, a a lesson from those police officers? The ones back from the the lethal lovers case. Yep. That would be nice. I'm still angry about that. Go ahead. Sorry. Um <laughs> Louis Bessemer and his mistress Harriet Lowe were attacked in the early morning hours of June 27th, 1918 in the quarters in the back of his grocery store. Bessemer was struck in the head with a hatchet above his right temple, which resulted in a possible skull fracture. Lowe was hacked over her left ear and was found unconscious when the police arrived on the scene. The couple were discovered shortly after 7 a.m. on the morning of the attack by John Zanka, a driver of a bakery wagon who had come to the grocery store in order to make his routine delivery. Zenka found both Bessemer and Lowe in a puddle of their own blood. The axe, which belonged to Bessemer himself, was found in the bathroom of the apartment. Bessemer later stated to the police that he had been sleeping when he was bashed with the hatchet, so he survived. Oh, shit. (laughs) Of course, police immediately arrested a suspect, Louis Obacon. Why do I say of course? Because he was a black man who happened to have a connection to Louis as an employee of the grocery store. Yep, saw that one coming. Robbery was said to be the only possible explanation for the attacks, yet no money or valuables were removed from the couple's home. Luckily, Obacon was released because the police were unable to gather enough evidence to hold him accountable for any crimes. Attention turned to the victim, Bessemer himself, when a series of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were found in a trunk in his home. 
the police suspected that he may have been a German spy. Government officials even investigated the potential espionage. Weeks later, after going in and out of consciousness, Harriet Lowe told the police that she did in fact think that Bessemer was a German spy, which led to his immediate arrest. Two days later, Bessemer was released, and two lead investigators on the case were demoted due to their unacceptable police work. Bessemer was once again arrested in August 1918 after Harriet Lowe, who lay dying in Charity Hospital after a failed surgery, stated that it was in fact he who had attacked her more than a month previously with his hatchet. He was charged with murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919 after a 10-minute jury deliberation. Okay. Anna Schneider was attacked in the early evening hours of August 5th, 1918. She was 28 years old eight months pregnant, and woke up to find a dark figure standing over her before she was bashed in the face repeatedly. Wow. Which just like, holy shit, if that's not the scariest Scariest. situation to be in, like, not only are you presumably home alone, you're home alone and pregnant, and then there's just, you wake up to a a man standing over your bed with an axe in his hand. Yeah. Like. (laughs) I don't like it. Her husband not returned <laughs> Her husband returned home after work, uh returned home from work after about midnight and discovered her. Her husband reported that there had been nothing taken from the house and none of the windows or doors appeared to have been forced open. Anna Schneider would not only survive the attack, she would also give birth to a healthy baby girl 2 days later. However, she unfortunately did not remember anything about the attack or her attacker. Joseph Romano was an elderly man living with his two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno. On August 10th, 1918, his nieces awoke to unusual sounds of a struggle in the adjoining room where their uncle slept. When they entered the room, they found their uncle had received a serious blow to the head and saw the assailant fleeing the scene. The pair would describe him as a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and had a slouched hat on. While he had initially survived the attack, Joseph Romano succumbed to his injuries two days later and passed away. The home had been ransacked, but again, no items appeared to have been stolen. Authorities also found a bloody axe in the backyard and discovered that a panel on the back door had been chiseled away. This is the attack that caused the city to descend into chaos and fear of the murders. Because all of these murders had been had happened to um, Italian immigrants so far. Ah. And so, and specifically, a lot of grocers. So I was there's some. Say, I yeah, did, either, you didn't say that there was a theme, but then it started to be a theme. Yeah. And so there's some theories um, that have been talked about in relation to the crime that it was some sort of racist, you know, feelings towards Italian immigrants at the time, or that. Um, there was something going on with maybe the mob and grocery stores in New Orleans at the time, like these were hits um, or something like that. But again, this is unsolved, so there's really no telling. (laughs) Citizens started reporting strange men whenever they saw them, and a few even reported finding axes that were not theirs in their backyards. Also, a lot of people who previously would leave their axes in their, like the back area of their houses, started taking them inside. Because a ton, the majority of the attacks happened with the victim's own tool. Yeah. 
John D'Antonio, a then-retired Italian detective, made public statements in which he hypothesized that the man who had committed the Axeman murders was the same man who had killed several individuals in 1911. The retired detective cited similarities in the manner by which the two sets of homicides had been committed as reason to assume that they had been conducted by the same individual. D'Antonio described the potential murderer as an individual of two of dual personalities who killed with no motive. Okay. He would later describe the killer as a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Interesting. Um, Charles Cordomiglia was an Italian immigrant who lived with his wife, Rosie, and infant daughter, Mary. On March 10th, 1919, they were attacked. Grocer Orlando Giordano, which is... <laughs> such a hard there's so many o's <laughs> and i've never e orlando i o yolando r l huh Orlando. is it yorlando I, I would assume so maybe i just push it all together and make it <laughs> um so giordano heard the screams and ran across the street where he found the attacked family rosie the wife stood in the doorway clutching her daughter's body charles was on the floor bleeding profusely the couple was rushed to the hospital where it was determined they had suffered skull fractures. Um, also, baby Mary did not survive. Um, she was killed with one wound to the back of the neck. Um, nothing had been stolen from the house, but the bottom panel of the back door had been chiseled out, and a bloody axe was found on the back porch of the home. Charles was released from the hospital while his wife remained at the hospital. Once she gained full consciousness, she claimed that Yorlando, who was 69 years old, and his son Frank were responsible for the attacks. It was determined that Yorlando was in too poor of health and too advanced in age to have done it. He couldn't have swung the axe hard enough. And Frank was over six feet tall and weighed more than 200 pounds, and he wouldn't have been able to fit through the panel on the door that had been removed. Okay. Charles vehemently denied his wife's claims, but the police still arrested the Giordanos. They were found guilty and Frank was sentenced to hang, while Orlando had been sentenced to life in prison. Charles divorced Rosie after the results of the trial. Nearly a year later, Rosie admitted that she had falsely accused the father and son, and the two were released from jail shortly thereafter. And, like, the reason why was because, like, she was jealous or something. Like, I couldn't find details as to why she did it. Like, why that. why you would do something like that. To the people who had come over and arguably, like, saved your lives if they had not gotten the authorities called. Right. Like, super fun. Not saying that it's impossible for, you know, the the person to, to find you being your attacker. It's a lot more common than it is uncommon, but <laughs> you have no evidence. Like, there's no proof. Yeah. And so, like, the whole thing that they had was her her witness statement. Right. They didn't have any other evidence. So once she pulled it, they couldn't keep them in prison. There was no reason to. Right. Then, on March 13th, 1919, a letter was published in the local paper, and it read, From Hottest Hell, March 13th, 1919 esteemed mortal of new orleans the axe man they have never caught me and they never will they have never seen me for i am invisible even as the ether surrounds your earth i am not a human being but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell 
I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not, let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise, and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most terrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could say th slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in a close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, oh, earthly on, time. <laughs> on next Tuesday, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that, and that is that if some of you people who do not jazz it out that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get my axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tataris, and it is about time to leave, it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it will go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed, either in, fa in fact or realm of fancy. The Axeman. Man, he, uh, that's some Zodiac shit. <laughs> You idiot cops. Yeah, he goes from saying, like, you stupid police officers to the police officers are the only ones smart enough to avoid me. Like, which one is it, yeah, Axeman? Yeah, I, I want to know which one it is. Are they dumb or are they smart? You can't be both. <laughs> I love that he wants them to jazz it up. <laughs> um, so that night that was advised that Tuesday, all of New Orleans dance halls were filled to capacity. And professional and amateur bands played jazz at parties at hundreds of houses around town. Wow. And there were no murders that night. Good for them. However, that would not be the end of crimes that the Axeman would be connected to. On August 10th, 1919, Steve Boca, another Italian-American grocer, was attacked in his bedroom by an axe-wielding intruder. Boca stated that he awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. When he regained consciousness, he ran out into the street and found that his head had been cracked open. He ran to a neighbor's home where he again lost consciousness. Nothing was stolen from the home, and yet again, the panel on the back door had been chiseled away. 
Boca recovered from his injuries, but like so many that had survived before him, did not remember anything about the attack. On September 3rd, 1919, Sarah Lauman was attacked. She lived alone and neighbors came to check on her, and when she didn't answer the door, they broke in. They discovered the 19-year-old lying unconscious in her bed, her head bleeding from a severe head injury, and missing several teeth. Ooh. The intruder entered through an open window and attacked her with a blunt object. A bloody axe was later discovered on the front lawn. Sarah survived, but could not remember the attack. Mm. The final known victim of the Axeman was Mike Pepitone, who has the best name ever, and I don't know why I like it so much. (laughs) It's just, it's good. I don't know. On October 27th, 1919, his wife was awakened by a noise and arrived at the door of the bedroom just as a large, axe-wielding man fled the scene. Mike had been struck in the head, and he and the room were completely covered in blood. She was unable to describe any characteristics of the killer. Which, I mean, fair. You walk into a room, you see a guy carrying an axe, everything is covered in blood. I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal to be like, okay, what's his height, weight, skin color, age? Like, (laughs) I think I would now. Yeah. I think you and I both having this interest in true crime, like, that's just innate in us now to be like... (laughs) Like, figure out as many things as possible. But, like, you think that, but you don't know. Right. But that's what I mean. Like, I having watched, I think it was an episode of Forensic Files. It was like, she liked true crime documentaries. And so she scratched the shit out of him and was like leaving particles of clothing and her hair everywhere. Like, that would be me. Yeah. I mean, it was like, um, you just well, hope I did that you don't get idiot cops who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, like, I did that um, case. What was her name? One of the bad bitches. Oh, yeah, yeah, And she, like, grabbed his wallet and stole, like, threw it out of his pocket under her bed and, like, scratched him and bit him and, like, all that stuff. Just being like, nah, man, not going. I know what they'll look for. (laughs) Uh, 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 not today. Um, so, um, so one of the only suspects that was, um alleged in the Axeman crimes was a man named Joseph Momfrey, um, a man who was allegedly shot to death by Mike Pepitone's widow in Los Angeles. However, there is no proof that a man named Joseph Momfrey or anything similar was assaulted in Los Angeles. There's also no report or record of Mike Pepitone's widow having been arrested at any point in her life. There's not actually a ton of theories on who the Axeman is or was. Uh, it seems pretty vague. Yeah. The Axeman of New Orleans still remains a mystery. Uh, Susan Kuhnhausen. Kuhn- yeah, that's who it was. By the way. Yeah. But yeah, I just, I feel like there's something, it has something to do with the fact that so many of the victims were Italian immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so many of the victims were grocers associated with a grocery store lived across from a grocery store were close friends with people who owned grocery stores like everything seems to have those two elements those connections yeah with the exception of like of like what is it sarah lauerman yeah she's the only one that seems kind of like sarah lauman she just seems to like maybe have been a a victim of circumstance more than anything Right, like maybe he got the wrong house, or maybe... Or maybe it wasn't even him, maybe it was a yeah. copycat. Copycat, yep, that happens. Like, because he, he came in through an open window, he didn't chisel out the back door, he didn't ransack the apartment, he didn't... Right. 
You know, like he knew whoever attacked knew enough to like attack with a an axe and leave it behind where they would yeah. find it. There's not a ton. piece of shit sounds like. Yeah, there's not a ton of like super specific mo, and this would have been a really hard time and a really hard community to keep information like that from going public. Right. You know, because like if one of the big concerns is like that he chisels out the back door, you want to tell the people in your your area like, hey, maybe you want to barricade your back door. Mm -hmm. Well, why do I want to do that? Well, because (laughs) or maybe don't leave your axe outside. Well, what do you mean? Like, is he using people's axe himself? Like Mm -hmm. people are going to figure it out because you want you don't want to tell your population nothing where they can't protect themselves because then you're just asking for more people to die because they don't know what to do to maybe help themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, that's a story. (laughs) That is uh, that is a story, man. I've heard it before, but I didn't know a lot of that, like the Italian grocer connection at all. Um, All I knew is that he liked jazz music. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to, because, oh yeah, also the Axeman has a jazz song written about him. that's not Um, good. So I'm probably going to try to find an audio clip of that to play at the end of the episode. (laughs) Nice. Well, my story isn't quite as fanciful. No, Uh, no, uh, from hottest hell letters no tartarus no nothing (laughs) uh wee woos for my story i'm gonna be talking uh, about some alcohol abuse uh definitely an eating disorder depression and talks of suicide good Um, yeah it's it's, this is a feel good episode (laughs) yeah clearly um and uh possibly uh partner abuse like it wasn't spousal like like you know, domestic abuse i guess yeah uh so yes uh and brief mention hey there are a lot of theories about this case like i like i was saying earlier and we'll probably do a lot of speculating of our own but this family um there's a lot of like weird fucking drama around this family uh there are people who are actually trying to figure things out there are people who are intentionally feeding bad information out into the internet because it's you know fun um there's this one video of this old dude and he just starts like on the anniversary of her going missing it has the date and then he's like happy anniversary and then it's just like him cackling and it's terrifying Uh, everybody said i've seen i think i've seen that video yeah he's like super creepy old guy and his teeth are all fucked up and he's like it's like in like a jungle i don't remember it this was a dark background so okay if if it was a jungle situation i was looking at it on a screen this big and i didn't notice that. okay we might be talking about two different videos because there's another one where it's like happy birthday so and so and it's like this old creepy man and it's just him cackling and it's terrifying but everybody said this guy's just a troll like don't listen to him i hate that for us to get a rise out of the internet and i'm like i hate it i hate it i hate it so uh, I told Roya, listeners, listen to me. I'm tell- I'm talking directly to you now. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll stop listening. No, I told Roya a few days ago that I thought this was going to be like a brief chat about this case. <laughs> and it wasn't going to be a long episode. But then I found the Missing Maura Murray podcast. And these two guys that run this, uh, Paul, or not Paul, shit. I'm already off to a bad start. Tim Polari and Lance Reensterna. I hope I'm saying their names right. Uh, they are up to at the time of this recording 
up to almost 150 episodes. Jesus Christ. Based on this case alone. And now they're talking to a lot of different people and a lot of different theories and a lot of uh, corrections and things like that. Some of the information I might give you today might be uh, old or it might be incorrect. But that's what I've gotten so far from I've taken as much as I can from as many different sources to try to uh, give you what is the most popular what's out there today. Um, And they were the ones that put out that docuseries I was telling you about from 2018. I did not get to watch that yet because it is uh, uh, $4 an episode. And quite frankly, I already had enough information. So I'm basically just going to do a rundown of what we know. Um, And if you are interested in learning more about this case, I also highly recommend checking out James Renner's uh, blog. He's a journalist and an author of Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Maura Murray. Um, And he is still actively looking into things. He is currently getting trolled by advocates for the family. It's very bizarre. There's a lot of drama if you're interested (laughs) in that sort of crazy shit. But fair warning, like I said, about the drama and, and there's just so, so much. So let's get into it. Maura Murray went missing on February 9th, 2004 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. She got into a car accident and by the time police showed up, she had vanished. I'm going to take just a second here to remind everybody that this is 2004. Roya and I were 14. (laughs) This This has been a big stretch of time and I think it's hard. I don't think about 17 years being that long ago, but for technology, that was a huge amount of time. She went missing just a couple days after the Facebook was launched, back when it was still the Facebook. And it was it was it public or was it just for like Harvard? So. Uh, it it's the whatever their Wikipedia page says that it was the day it was launched. So okay. I don't know the ins and outs of the Wikipedia or the, the 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 Facebook, but it says that's the day it was launched. So this is like the infancy of social media still. Um. This is also the first year or the year I, I got my first cell phone. <laughs> I was like a Samsung flip phone. Actually, it's the same phone that Mara Murray had. So I just wanted to make an emphasis on we do not have the connections and the tracking capabilities that we have now. So going forward, I think that's part of why this is such a big thing, because this is right as things are starting to get more internet focused and so more people were getting interested as the internet was becoming the booming sensation that it is now so maura murray was born on may 4th 1982 may 4th she's a star wars baby uh and her parents are fred and Lori. uh she was born in massachusetts they were an irish catholic family she had five siblings she's got one older brother fred two older sisters kathleen and julie uh i'm sorry she's one of five children she doesn't have five siblings uh because she's got a younger brother named kurt also so that's four total uh Her parents divorced when she was six years old, and she lived primarily with her mother, but it was said that she had a very close relationship with her dad. He coached her basketball team. He went to all of her track meets. He was, you know, very involved. Um, She was in high school, the, like, top five of her class. Uh, Like I said, she was very athletic. She was a track star. She won state championships, that sort of thing. And then because of her academic skill and her and her running skill, uh, she's actually accepted to West Point Military Academy in New York, where she studied chemical engineering. Wow. And I think I was reading that that's like a huge deal. And they only accept like 10% of their applicants. Uh, but she later transferred to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, where she studied nursing, uh, but consistently made the dean's list. 
She had a boyfriend, Billy Roush, who she met at West Point. Uh, he was a little bit older. He had graduated and was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma uh, hmm. at the time of her disappearance. So this seems like the all-American girl situation. She's beautiful, smart, athletic. Uh, but she did have some troubles. I don't think she was a bad kid. I think she was just young and stupid. But she was also a young white woman. And so she had the privilege of this just being a bad kid situation and not a criminal thug situation. Uh, so take that with a grain of salt as you go forward. Uh, Moira got in some trouble at West Point. She was asked to leave due to violation of their code of conduct. Uh, because while she was at Fort Knox... What people, you know, like think of as the most secure fucking place in the world. Mara decided to steal some makeup. Oh, jeez. Five dollars worth of makeup. And uh, so she went in front of the, like, advisory board uh, for her punishment. And they would have expelled her. But instead, they offered her the opportunity to withdraw so that she wouldn't have to have this expulsion on her record. Um, and so that's why she transferred to UMass. Uh, while she was at UMass... Uh, she was caught committing credit card fraud in 2003. So from what I read, and this is from James Renner's blog, a fellow student at the university found strange charges on their account. And it was like, there was a place called Pinocchio's and like a couple other uh, pizza places. And Uh it was all like subs and pizzas and like salads and things like that, that she was getting delivered to her dorm, to her dorm. Like, (laughs) if you don't want to get caught committing credit card fraud, don't have it delivered directly to you. Uh, Just just FYI. Uh, (laughs) So the same night that this is all sort of getting figured out that that's where the charges are coming from, she orders more food from Pinocchio's. So the police, like, are in on it. They enlist the delivery guy uh, for part of the sting. And he goes and he brings her the, I think it was subs and a salad and he brings her this food and as soon as she signs the receipt the police are there going hey bitch you, you been got like gotcha. they explain <laughs> yeah right uh so they explain why they're there and at first she's like no 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 i don't know what you're talking about uh but then she ends up admitting that she found the number on a receipt in the trash can so i was like wait a minute Receipts only have like the last four numbers. How on earth was she lying? Like, is this real? Uh, But I did end up finding that the Congress set the standard of limiting credit card numbers on receipts in 2003. And states uh, varied on their own standards between 98 and 2008. So it's possible. Or, you know, who knows? Maybe it was one of those old carbon copy deals of a credit card. Yeah. She somehow got this number. Uh, the theft was less than a th- uh, than a hundred dollars. I think I read it was like seventy nine and change. So instead of being arrested, she was put on probation, and the charges were to be dismissed in February if she was on good behavior. It was put on the books as quote improper use of a credit card under two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, the quantities of food she was ordering were enough for two people, but no one has ever come forward and said yes, I was eating this food with Mora or um. Some other theories claim uh, that she was under a lot of pressure to keep her body in a certain way because of her athletic background and that she may have been bulimic or had a binge purge type eating disorder. There was one discussion on the case where I found they even claimed that Mora was harassed by friends and family for her eating disorder. Like, why are you eating so much? You're just going to throw it up anyway. Jeez. And that kind of garbage. Yeah. But that's just a theory. I couldn't find any actual proof that that obviously... I just wanted to put that out there that that's a possibility. Also, I think these people aren't giving a college student enough credit and wanting to order 
leftovers. Yeah. At the court hearing on December 18th uh, for this, the judge told her to repay the money. And if she stayed out of trouble for three months, the charges would be dropped. And if she didn't stay out of trouble, she would be charged with identity theft and credit card fraud. Oof. That's just some of the details um, about her background. I wanted to give you to tell you the kind of person she is. She's not this all-American girl. Everybody makes her out to be. There's an Oxygen documentary, or maybe it's not Oxygen, ID something uh, called ID Channel, like Disappeared. Mm. And it's this very sugar-coated version of her where she's a saint and she's done nothing wrong. No, she's perfect. Uh, so I, this kind of gives you an idea of what to speculate on going forward. Soroya, I know that you know this, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too, but I just want to make it clear before I do get into this further, the following events that I'm going to be talking about may or may not have anything to do with Morris' disappearance. In general, when you are looking at a missing person's case, the events leading up to that disappearance are often the most important indicators of what may have happened. Uh, So like what was going on in her head, that sort of thing. So on Thursday, February 5th of 2004, Mora had a break from her security job at UMass at the Melville Hall dormitory. She was like, uh, in my in my university, uh, you know, you would go into a dorm and if you didn't live there, you'd have to show your ID and sign in and things like that. Uh, so I, I'm guessing she worked at the desk and doing this sort of thing. She had made a phone call to her older sister, Kathleen. Kathleen was the oldest sister. She had some trouble of her own with drug use and was in and out of rehab, apparently, had been busted for growing marijuana at some point which doesn't sound like a big deal now but this is 2004 a little different uh we don't know what they spoke about for sure kathleen later came out and said that it was about her fiance and or husband not and just or husband (laughs) and that uh at the time he was not supportive of her sobriety and that she had relapsed and was on alcohol and pain pills the next thing that we know is that one of her supervisors, Karen, was told that Mora was upset and had been crying. The supervisor said she found out Mora was just sitting there. She found her sitting blankly and like Mora didn't acknowledge her presence when she walked into the room and she was just like completely checked out. She was in such a state, let's translate, trance-like state, that when her supervisor asked what was wrong, she kind of gestured to her phone and said, my sister. So it was presumed that there was another phone call because this is a couple hours later. Uh, phone records indicate that she was actually speaking to her boyfriend, Billy, on her cell phone between 12.07 and 12.14 a.m. Uh, and that supervisor, Karen, took her back to her dorm and was kind of trying to talk to her, uh, was saying like, hey, I've dealt with depression. If you need to talk to anybody, like, here's my phone number. Do you want me to bring you some Dunkin' Donuts in the morning? Like, she was being real nice. And she was actually afraid to leave Mora alone in her dorm room. But Mora told her that she had a roommate and that it was fine and she didn't really want to talk to anybody. She's going to go to bed. Mora did not have a roommate, so she's a liar. There are a lot of theories about what Mora may have been referring to uh, when she said my sister, because if it wasn't Kathleen and her relapse episode, um, Julie was Mora's other sister who was also a runner and had gone to West Point and graduated. And there are a lot of uh, conversations about how there was jealousy, like sibling rivalry issues, animosity between them. And to my knowledge, that has remained unsubstantiated. Uh, An old roommate of Mara's said that the eating disorder was well known and that Julie in particular was hard on Mara for uh, studying and running and, and maintaining that situation. So 
about a I half just hour. I don't understand how you could be like mean to any about anyone about something like that, but right? especially mean to a sibling. Yes, like your family. Like, okay, look, I I barely speak to my family, but I wouldn't even in my most animosity-ridden sections of my family would never be like, yeah, well, you have a fucking eating disorder. Like, who yeah, does like, that? It's disgusting. You're disgusting. Yeah, it's just... Oh. If it's true, it's disgusting. It's <laughs> like, mean just to be mean, and that just doesn't make sense. That doesn't compute in my brain. Yeah. So about a half hour before that phone call, another UMass student named Patrit Vassi was injured in a hit-and-run car accident. Uh, before the boyfriend phone call uh, at 12 a.m. He suffered severe head trauma. And the reason I bring this up is because there are theories that will kind of link into speculating later um, that the damage that was done to Maura's car when it was found were not consistent with the accident where she went missing. And so the theory goes that Maura had a break and went out for coffee or something and in that time, she would have had enough time to go out and accidentally hit Patrit Vassi with her car, leave him there. And then when she came back, she was so shaken up that she was left speechless. And then she makes up this phone call and then had to be escorted to her room by her supervisor. Like, mm. especially if you just hit and run this guy on accident or, you know, hit this guy on accident and you're thinking, man, my probation's about to be up. I'm about to have these charges dropped. I don't want to get in more trouble. I'm just going to fucking flee. And, like, all of this going on in her head. Patrick did survive the incident, but he still suffers from side effects from it for, to this day. Uh, and did end up in a coma for about a month. Jeez. Uh, he said he never saw the car in question or he didn't remember because of the head trauma. Yeah, head trauma be like that. As, yeah. as uh, explained in the previous segment yeah. of this episode. Yeah. Uh, so she, the idea is that she panics and she went through all this and so... When the supervisor on her, she just kind of is like out of it and goes, um, my sister, like, mm. and it's a great story because there is no story. Who's going to ask you to elaborate when you're in this state, you know, and there's zero proof. There's zero evidence of that as a, as a theory. It's not even a police theory. It's just speculation by people on the internet trying to figure things out and the way the pattern of uh, damage is on the car. Um, so that's just one to put in your little brain for later. <laughs> okay. That Saturday, February 7th, Mara's dad visited and took her to go car shopping. They went to look for a new used car, allegedly. Allegedly. Mm -hmm. um, so he was from Shelton, Connecticut, or he was living in Shelton, Connecticut. Uh, and that's about a 90-some mile drive to Amherst. So he was, you know, it was a haul. Uh, early accounts differ uh, from later ones. And because of this, a lot of people find Fred pretty sus. I don't blame them. I'm kind of on the sus team. <laughs> Fred maintains that he was helping Maura buy her a car and that the car she was already driving, her 96 Saturn, was not running well and that she needed a new one because she had to drive to these different nursing clinicals off campus and she had two part-time jobs. Uh, she worked at the security job and she also worked at an art gallery. According to him, that day, they shopped for a used car. They did not purchase a car. And then they met with... Kate Markopoulos, a friend of Mora's, for dinner at a local bar where they had some drinks and, you know, hung out. Then they went to a liquor store uh, to get booze because the two girls were going to go to a party later that night. And this is where the story starts to uh, veer Weird. into two different directions. <laughs> uh, in one account, uh, in a deposition to police, he states that he 
had gone into the store with them and told them to hurry up. In another version, he tells them that he he was waiting in the car. He didn't go in. Now, I don't know why you'd lie about something like that. That seems like a really small detail. Yeah. But seems pretty sus. According to Tim and Lance from Missing Maura Murray, the friend that they went to dinner with, Kate Markopoulos, said that nothing was mentioned about shopping for a car. Uh, and that's like, you know, if you and I went out for dinner and I was shopping for a car, I'd probably tell you like, oh, yeah, we went car shopping today and I didn't find shit or I kind of figure out what I want to get or, yeah, you know, like, like that's something that you would. talk about cars a little bit. It's small talk. Yeah. I mean, it's what did you do today? Yeah. Well, I went car shopping with my dad. That's why he's here. Yeah. And like, that's a pretty significant. It's not like, you know, oh, I went had subway for lunch yeah, right? like it's <laughs> although that is something that some of my people would tell me <laughs> my grandmother loves to tell me where she goes to lunch um also this is a 96 saturn and this is a car that's less than 10 years it's eight years old at this point like it mm-hmm. makes you wonder exactly how bad this car had to be running at it as an eight-year-old car my car is a 2012 and it's it's perfect. It's lovely. Don't ever die on me, Bev. I love you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we've got the Camry that's a 2002. And like, while it doesn't have the get up and go that it did, it right. still will get you around. Right. So like how and, and this car, obviously, this is the car that she goes to disappearing in. And, and she has like a, a hefty drive to get up through New Hampshire. Uh, so like it's it's clearly running well enough. Yeah. Unless maybe it was, you know, damaged in a hit and run and dad wanted to help protect his daughter by getting her a new car. Yeah. Only only no one will tell. That's right. <laughs> so Fred maintains and repeats that this car wasn't running well and it's not really mentioned by anybody else. Julie also confirmed that it wasn't in great shape, but y'all are family. Just I'm, I'm, my eyes are on you. So Fred goes to the motel after... Uh, these drinks and the and the alcohol shopping and he decides that it's a great idea to allow for mora who has already been drinking and is going to a party to do more drinking and he just took her to shop for alcohol um to lend her his brand new car a toyota corolla or camry i didn't write it down uh but it's a brand new car and she's supposed to bring the car back in the morning and it's important to i want to important to note he could have dropped her off this party was in like 300 yards of her dorm she could have walked home mm-hmm. uh, but he gives her the car Mora goes to this party and she's seen there potentially with a guy those who say she left with someone can't remember who it was and 17 years later no guy has come forward and admitted that it was him from what i looked into people couldn't even give a description of him and if i were at a party and my friend is leaving with a dude i don't know i'd probably try to get some information out of yeah, I would have gone up. I want to know his name. Asked them what was what was up. Like, yeah, hey, I wanna... we came here together. Why are you leaving with some guy? I don't understand. Girl especially code. Especially when I was twenty one and drunk. Like I was super mom. Yeah. <laughs> like like you don't fuck with my girl sort of thing. That was me. And I, I That's can't still imagine. Me. Right. <laughs> uh, I, you know, like everybody was saying, well, these are drunk college students. You might have. You might have better luck getting truthful informations out of the toddlers we talked about in last week's episode. But, like, I just, uh, what are you doing? These are all close friends, too, and they've been friends for a while. So I just don't understand how you just let some, your friend, leave with some dude and you just casually don't have any information about it. Yeah, I was, I remember being 
I remember being 21, 22, and, like, having just met a girl at a bar, and mm-hmm. she starts leaving with a guy that I don't know, and I went up and was just like, hey, what's going on? I thought we were hanging out. Like, is everything, are we good? Like. Yeah. Girl code. Yeah. It's real. And it has no genders. It's no. called girl code, but there is no gender on girl code. If you <laughs> if you see a, a sketch situation, you act. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So, th- so the two friends that were at the party, Kate Markopoulos was one, um, and Sarah Alafiri was another one, and they have both been super uncooperative and like refuse to talk to people and will not talk about the party that night. And in some like, if the party was so big that there are enough people that anybody could have come forward who didn't have a connection to to either of those two, but might have known who they were because they're at this party. Like, they could have come forward and said, oh, yeah, I know the dude she left with. Or I know this or I know that. Nobody's come forward. And if it's a really small party where everybody wants to protect Mora, then how could Sarah and Kate then say, well, I don't know who she left with. I don't know who anybody was at the party. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm just, I want to know. I need the answer. (laughs) So uh, around 3 a.m., she leaves the party. And she she says she's going to return her dad's car with or without this stranger danger. We don't know if there was a guy. There are some people that say she left alone. Um, And her friends who know she's been drinking all night and that her dorm is within walking distance. Just let her go. One source did claim that Katie did try to keep her from leaving. But man, like, try harder. Uh, I don't want to be your friend. As Mora is driving away from the party, there's a T-shaped intersection uh, where she took the third option of going straight forward into a guardrail. In her dad's brand new car. The car was totaled uh, and was towed to the hotel. Mora got a ride with her dad, uh, with the with the tow truck driver to the dad's motel. And uh, she somehow managed to avoid any trouble for driving intoxicated. Will you give me just one second? Yes, I can. Thank you. Sorry. Hello. Hi. Sorry, my cousin texted me and said that they were here to mow the lawn, so we need oh. to move the cars. So uh, Lisa's doing that for me. Well, Lisa's great. She really is. So, car was towed to the hotel. Mora got a ride to the hotel with the tow truck driver. Didn't get in trouble for driving intoxicated. Um, she was said to be quite shaken up. No charges were filed. The There was eight to $10,000 of damages done to the vehicle that apparently was going to be paid by insurance. And so she basically got out of this whole situation smelling like a road, like a really drunk road. <laughs> uh, there was a police officer who showed up and wrote the accident report, but no record of any sobriety test or anything, which is fucking weird. That's a college student at 3 a.m. getting in a car accident. I, my first instinct would be, uh, we're going to do a sobriety test. I don't know. Uh, so this part is uh, really fuzzy. There's a lot of murky water here. Okay. It said that she went to the hotel lobby and fell asleep on the couch and that maybe a person working there uh, at the hotel let her into Fred's room. She somehow ended up in Fred's room. Not sure what she did once she was inside that didn't wake him up. He claims that he didn't know she was there until he woke up later and that he woke up around 10.30 or 10 or 10.30 a.m. Except for that there was a, a, a phone call from... Fred's cell phone to Billy, Mora's boyfriend, at 4.49 a.m., a little more than an hour after the accident, which you think about all the time it takes for them to get a tow truck and the police officer to write up the report. By the time she gets back, timeline makes sense. Yeah. But how are you making a phone? I mean, your dad must be a fucking heavy ass sleeper. 
if you're making a phone call, a distraught to your boyfriend at 4.49 in the morning and he's not waking up. Yeah. Billy said uh, that he did have this phone call with Maura uh, and he told her or like she was very upset and he told her to calm down and promised uh, that they would talk the next day because it's, you know, 3.49 a.m. for him. <laughs> Rude. Uh, so Fred claims. I wonder if they had uh, was it Fred's cell phone or was it just Fred's room that had the call? It says Fred's cell phone. And okay. my thought was maybe she went in the bathroom. Yeah, because that was also my thought if it was Fred's room, because some hotels have those uh, bathroom... The bathroom phones? Yeah. The poop phones. Oh, no. It's so loud. I'm so sorry. Should we wait? <laughs> I've got myself muted, so you should be okay. Okay. For everybody, uh, Roy is cousin doing the lawn so she's got a lawnmower in the background for the time being and i'm just gonna keep going uh so so yeah that was my thought was maybe she did it in the bathroom maybe she stepped out in the hallway or outside i don't know if this is a hotel or a motel um but it happened and he claims he didn't know that it happened balcony also a possibility um he claims that uh when she told him about the accident he wasn't angry um that she destroyed his brand new vehicle uh but he was relieved that she was okay and he was more concerned with how he was going to get back to connecticut to get to work and stuff because it's sunday he's got to be back at work on monday so we're at i would never let my child near any car i ever owned ever again ever right exactly uh so fred claims that that happened uh i i don't know that i believe him again i find fred a little so we're at sunday february 8th and uh fred uh contacted the insurance he was able to rent a car um and he drove home he drove back to connecticut they talked that evening about maura getting copies of the accident report and uh forms to fill out for insurance from the police and maura agreed and she was going to get what she needed the next day on monday and that they would talk through them that evening so monday february 9th the day of the disappearance uh i've looked through a handful of these sources and the events i'm about to go through definitely take place but the timing might be off in sequence um so i'm just going to kind of go through what happened and you can bear with me if there's any differences out there i'm not claiming that this is perfect but it, this this all happened in an order <laughs> um roy is laughing at me so maura made a phone call trying to rent a condo in bartlett new hampshire where she and her family visited regularly for vacation she was familiar with that area The call lasted for about three minutes. No rental reservations were made. There were a couple other calls made, possibly um, some emails, all trying to rent a place uh, in New Hampshire or in Vermont. But no reservation was actually made to rent anywhere that I could tell. She also map quested some directions from Anhurst to Burlington, Vermont, which, man. Wow. I haven't thought about map quests in a long time. quest. You got to print your directions to get where you want to go. Or you gotta be cheap, like my family, and write them down. Write them down. Yep. Mm hmm. (laughs) So Billy called several times throughout the day. Several times. Several times. And Maura sent him an email response. And this is around 1 p.m., I think. She sends this email and it says basically, got your message. Don't really feel like talking to anybody today. Love you, stud. That's what she says. Love you, stud. Gross. there, there's a lot of uh, talk about how they had issues with their relationship. They were both cheating on each other. Um, but that sounds to me like something, I don't know, like playful almost. Like not like there's a whole bunch of issues going on. Uh, and right after that email was sent, there's record that she basically calls somebody else. 
She says, hey, I don't want to talk to anybody. And then makes a phone call immediately to somebody else. And she leaves a voicemail, uh, which the police said was of no significance to the case, which sounds kind of like, again, suspicious. Uh, But it ended up being about returning a lab coat to a fellow student. Um, Then she called 1-800-GO-STOW. And Stowe, Vermont is like a... Stowe Mountain or Mount Stowe. I don't know. Uh, It's a like a ski resort, essentially. Um, And you call this number and it connects you so that you can rent a room or find some place in the area to stay. Uh, But that line was actually down for the day. So it was just a record pre-recorded message saying here are the places you can call to try to find a place. I don't know exactly what it said, but she couldn't rent a, a room that way. So again, no reservations were made. Mara calls Billy about an hour and 20 minutes after she emailed him that she didn't want to talk. And the call lasted for about a minute. There's no record of what was talked about or if they talked. Maybe she just left a message. I was reading a lot of the back and forth between them here. Uh, He had, by one account, called Mara's friend, Katie, uh, to try to find out what was going on. And Billy was known by Mara and friends as controlling and possessive. And this is not weird for him to be calling her friends and being like, where is she? What is she doing? Like that sort of thing, which is gross. Uh, and according to James Renner's post about Mora's love affair with her assistant track coach, uh, Hossein Baghdadi, I think that's how you say it. Um, he mentioned that she, that she had told him he was basically abusive. Uh, whether or not that's true, I don't know. I don't know if I take him at his word on that, but that's what he claims. Then Mora emails her professors uh, and her work supervisor, and she says, I'm not going to be in class for the week. I'm going to be gone. Uh, there's family emergency. We've had a death in the family. And she says she needs to go home. As you've probably guessed, the family later said this is not true. There was no death in the family. And at this point in the um, the sugar-coated documentary I was talking about, um, this is where Billy's mom, Sharon, said in her interview that Mora was not a liar. So this was out of character for her. And I'm sitting here looking through my notes going, oh, ma'am, I'm going to have to disagree with you. <laughs> So she leaves the, uh, she leaves Amherst. She leaves UMass around 4 p.m. She removes something like $280 from her account. Everything she, everything she had except for $16. And people were like, why that specific amount? And I'm like, because if you can only take out 20s, you got to leave the $16 behind from an ATM. Uh, so then she goes to a liquor store and she bought, according to some sources, a box of Franzia, Kahlua, vodka, and Bailey's. Other sources say... Uh, the guys from uh, Missing Maura Murray said that the receipt shows she bought a box of wine, uh, a bottle of Kahlua, and then a six-pack of Seagram's wine coolers. She's 21. Come on. Uh, I had better taste at 21. That's not <laughs> so, did I. so did I. I think she did later pick up the accident report, the forms that her dad requested, um, but they were found blank when they went through her car. So after all this, Maura headed towards the White Mountains in New Hampshire, though there is some speculation that she may have actually detoured east through Massachusetts, either to Weymouth, where her dad actually had his house, or Boston. There's no confirmed sightings. The closest that we get to making that uh, assumption is that uh, the last call she made to her dorm was at 4.37 p.m., and her phone actually pinged off of a cell tower in Londonbury, London, sorry, Londonderry, uh, New Hampshire, I think uh, I said it w- she would have had to have been within 15 to 20 feet of the cell tower for it to ping. So it's likely she was over in the east part of the state at that point. 
which makes no sense because if you're going up to Vermont through like to get to the White Mountains, she basically went east and then shot northwest. I just kind of dabbed. I don't know. I didn't mean to. (laughs) So yeah, she made this weird detour that wasn't necessary. So she stopped at a gas station before she got onto Route 112 in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. At 727, an accident was reported. A black car in a snowbank facing west on the eastbound side. A woman who made the call said that she thought she saw a man in the passenger seat smoking a cigarette, but that was never confirmed. Uh, And the woman reporting the incident later said it might have been a light from a cell phone in the vehicle. Now, I don't know about A man-shaped light. Right? I don't know about you, but I think when you're like recounting the events of something, your first instinct is usually correct, in my experience. Yeah, but eyewitness testimonies are... I mean, they're fucked. (laughs) Yeah, like, and it's, it's things like, you know, what is... Someone driving 45 for one person is someone driving 65 for another. Yeah. You know, like... But seeing somebody in a passenger seat seems like a pretty clear... I don't don't know. know. It would depend on if she had anything in the passenger seat. At a passing glance, if you had, like, a a duffel bag or something. So, the lady who made this phone call later came forward and said, you know, it might have been, I saw a red light from the cell phone, um... Because you remember those old flip phones had those little flashing red lights on them. Yeah. Um, and that maybe she saw the red light and thought it was the, like, the cherry off of, of cigarette. Which, I mean, I can see that. Like, I can understand yeah. that. Especially with cell phones being so new, relatively yeah. speaking. Yeah. The dispatch log said, quote, unknown if person injured but can see a man in vehicle smoking a cigarette. So, I don't know. I was, when I was in, when I was in college, I was a part of a psych majors um study and they basically did that they were testing eyewitnesses and uh i accidentally ruined her sample (laughs) because i knew the guy she used so she's like oh man i forgot to get pencils i'm gonna go grab them i'll be right back and she left the room and then uh while she was gone somebody came in and stole her purse and left and we were supposed to like write who we saw and the details and the descriptions and that sort of thing and and it was basically to show how bad the eyewitness testimonies are yeah and i knew the guy who she had come in and steal the purse <laughs> so i was like didn't work for me i i ruined your sample i'm sorry if you want a very enjoyable uh movie to watch that has a great part about that just tears apart eyewitness testimonies uh my cousin Vinny. oh yeah the trial part where he's just like talking about you know how long it takes to cook grits and like were you wearing your glasses at the time like yeah. <laughs> uh So another muddy situation was that there may have been a recent snow, but many said that it was a fairly mild day in February in New Hampshire. Like it was above freezing. Um, Oh, so mild. Right? So uh, the reports on the state of the roads uh, vary somewhat. So I don't know if the roads were actually bad or not, Uh, but it is heading up north to the mountains. And if it's anything like the mountains where I come from in Pennsylvania, I know that the the roads are really windy and twisty and it's it, it is very difficult to navigate, especially in the wintertime. So yeah. she may have had that handicap as well. Uh, but there was one handicap that we know she had. She was drinking. This so, girl, man. So the car had allegedly hit a tree and then sort of spun around and ended up in a snowbank, like I said, facing west. The windshield was cracked. Like, the upper part of the windshield was cracked. Like, she either shot up and forward or somebody taller was driving the vehicle. 
the both airbags uh, had been deployed and the driver's side headlight was cracked. Uh, local school bus driver Butch Atwood spotted Mora as he was driving home from work and stopped to help her. Uh, Butch said that Mora looked distraught and was shivering, but he did not believe that she was drunk. Uh, she told him that she didn't need him to call the police. Please don't call the cops. Uh, I call AAA. It's fine. Which is another lie because there was no way she was getting cell phone service in that area. Um, and Butch knew that. Butch was like, all right, I'm going to go home and call the cops. <laughs> like, it's basically what he did. And he made that phone call at 7.43 p.m. At 7.46, the Haverhill Police Department arrived at the scene and Mora was nowhere to be found. So between 7.27, when the first phone call was made, and 7.46, or I mean, Butch Atwood got there like a 7 or a 33. So between that 13 minute time frame, she just disappears. Uh, 7.57, a be on the lookout was put out for a female matching Mara's description. Butch Atwood had come back out to talk to police. He told them who he saw, what he saw, the... He tried to, like, drive around with them and help them look for her. Uh, police noted that there was no sign of a driver. There were also no signs of footprints through the snow leading away from the incident. And and people, if you don't know this, um, people love to flee the scene of a drunk driving accident so that they can sober up. And then they come back to the accident later and they, like, concoct some story about what actually happened. And so that's what they just assumed Mora was doing. Like, oh, she was drunk. She, she ran the scene. And the reason why they think that is because they could see the box of wine in the back seat, mm. as well as red stains on the driver's side door and the ceiling above the driver's seat. The doors were locked. There was a towel found in Mora's tailpipe. It's all very strange. Yeah, this is super weird. So Was she like so drunk that she was like, let me try to make this look like someone tried to blow up my car? We'll get there. Police assumed that since Mora was driving or like she seemed to be drinking she, she fled the scene and that was they were like all right well we won't find her tonight because we're not gonna stay out here in the dark cold looking for her if it's just this they didn't think anything big or scary had happened and at eight forty nine, about an hour later uh, her car was towed to lavoy's towing or by lavoy's towing towing and at nine twenty seven, police had or were leaving the scene at that point the next day, they ordered another bolo for Maura Murray specifically by name uh, because they had at that point run her plates and things like that. They were trying to contact her family. Uh, but Fred was still staying in Connecticut. He worked a job. Um, I think he was a radiologist. And so he was working in Connecticut under contract uh, while his house was, house was still in Weymouth. So he didn't get the message until uh, I think it was Julie who called him at 5 p.m. the next day. Billy was flying out of Oklahoma on the morning of Wednesday, February 11th, and was going through security when he missed a call. The voicemail he received was described as someone breathing, possibly crying, sniffling, or whimpering. When he called back, it was discovered that the call was made from a prepaid calling card, which his mom in that documentary um, claimed that they used to get those for her before she had a cell phone to make long-distance calls. Uh, that was her way... Yeah, uh, that was her way to call Billy before she had a cell phone. And he was the one who ended up getting a, a line on his account for her. Um, and he was convinced that the call was from Mora. Uh, but it was later mentioned by James Renner that it was actually a Red Cross worker trying to reach him 
in reference to his request for emergency leave from the military. Why are they using a prepaid cell phone or a prepaid phone? Yeah. Doesn't make any sense to me. It's it gets weirder. An official search was started uh, with her family and some of her friends, I think. And the police end up using one of her gloves uh, for the sniffer puppo. Like, here you go, buddy. Smell this and find find a girl. And Fred was pissed. Fred was like, she never wore that glove. She barely, she just got those gloves for Christmas. I could have given them something better. And he was like, he was from the get go real. He did not like the way the police were conducting the search. And so he tracks this, the dog tracks her within like a hundred feet of the scene before they lose the scent. Uh, And many theorize that because of this and the lack of footprints, she probably got into a passing vehicle. That evening, Billy was interrogated by the police first alone and then with his parents. Investigators had concluded that Mora had the plan to run away, which she had the right and privilege to do as an adult. Uh, And then she would maybe commit suicide. Like maybe that was her plan. Yeah. I don't know how they came up with that from the tiny bit of evidence that they had. They hadn't even searched the car at this point. Uh, When investigators finally did search her car four days after the disappearance, they found what was left behind, which was an empty soda bottle with red liquid in it. That definitely smelled like red wine. A AAA card. The blank incident forms for the insurance. Uh, there were gloves, makeup, diamond jewelry, uh, the printed MapQuest directions to Stowe and Burlington, Vermont. Uh, her birth control pills, her college textbooks and a syllabus, her favorite stuffed animal, a bag of clothes, and a book titled Not Without Peril by Nicholas Hauer, which is like a collection of stories about mountain climbers, who are not prepared and some of them are successful and some of them die tragically. Her wallet and its contents, like her ID and her credit cards were missing, as were her keys and phone. The liquor was gone and it was believed that she had a black backpack that she had taken and that was gone as well. The items were given to the family in February and then in July. (sighs) This made me so mad. Then in July, the police were like, oh, can we have those back for forensic analysis? come on my dudes come on have they never seen csi before in their lives what are they thinking the fbi ended up joining the search about two weeks later though they didn't do a whole lot new hampshire authorities searched again with helicopters and like thermal imaging and tracker dogs and cadaver dogs uh all of her items were packed oh this back at they they were they were going through her stuff back at umass all of her items were packed in boxes even taking pictures and art off the walls. The boxes were stacked on her bed, and on top of the boxes was an email between her and Billy about how he had cheated on her previously. So, one of the big theories because of this sort of thing is uh, when someone commits suicide, a lot of the times they will tie up all their loose ends. Yeah. Um, They'll pack their things to make it easier for their families to deal with whatever they leave behind. She called a fellow student and returned a lab coat to them because... You don't want to go to the police and say, hey, that girl who killed herself, can I get my lab coat back? Yeah. <laughs> like she said, there was a death in the family. Um, she possibly, there's there's some theories about how she possibly had developed some mental health issues. A lot of things like schizophrenia and bipolar can develop in your late teens and uh, early 20s. Mm-hmm. So it's possible she had some underlying mental health disorders that she was not dealing with. Um, friends deny that she was suicidal. Uh, she had items that she had taken like birth control pills and her textbooks and things like, why would you take those if you plan on killing yourself? There was no note 
she had emailed them a couple days before and said, hey, there's a Dane Cook. That dates this. That dates the story right there. <laughs> there's a Dane Cook thing uh, and I want to go see it. And it was supposed to be a couple days after she disappeared or like the next week or something. Yeah. It's weird to make plans if you're planning on killing yourself. Right. Uh, but the friends, like I said, they're withholding information. So we don't know. Um, so that's that's why a lot of people think that she went and killed herself. Uh, many There have been many possible sightings of her, especially in Canada and Quebec, but none have been verified. Um, oh, and the rag, the, the rag in the tailpipe. So when they called Fred, they said, hey, your daughter's had an accident. We found her car. And he said, if there's a rag in the tailpipe, I told her to put it there. Right? Why? <laughs> okay, so I was... I was listening to the Missing Laura Murray podcast and they were talking about like, that's so fucking weird. That would make your car stall. That would give your car problems because your exhaust wouldn't work. But apparently somebody else wrote into them and said, no, my dad told me to do this. And he like went on some big explanation that I didn't understand about how it helped his car and that he did the same thing when he was in, in like early college because of his car not working. And I was like, I don't get it. But apparently that's some like weird home remedy for your car. Weird. I don't. Think yeah, I always thought it was like banana in the tailpipe. Like, yeah, it, it makes your car blow up. Yeah. That's how it works in Looney Tunes. <laughs> and Beverly Hills Cop. That's right. So, yeah. So he basically said, I told her to put it there. And so now people are like, Fred, are you more sus than we thought you were? <laughs> Another idea is that there was an opportunistic killer sort of situation. Uh, I said she had stopped at that gas station and if somebody was on the lookout, they see a girl, a young girl with a license plate from out of state. She goes inside to pay for her gas. They put the thing, you know, thing in the tailpipe and then she stalls out. She gets in a car accident. He happens by to pick her up. Then murks her. It just seems too, too, op- or too coincidental. Like too many things had to, to mesh for that to happen for me. I don't, I don't buy that theory at all. Uh, but yeah, most people think that she probably just ran away. Uh, she was noted as not being a person who liked to look bad in front of other people, thus the eating disorder, and that maybe she just wanted to disappear. Um, there's the idea that she potentially could have done exactly what the police thought she was going to do, which is she got caught drinking and driving. She didn't want to be, you know, she was about to be off probation. She didn't want to get in trouble. And so she went in the woods to hide and fell victim to the elements. A big thing about this is that she is a runner. Like this is somebody who is used to hiking and used to running. Like these are things she did a lot. She was an athletic person. She could have gotten really far away. But if that's the case, then how are we missing footprints? And, yeah. you know, how the, the, the scent, you know, I think she got in a car. I think she wanted to get away. And I think she's hiding out somewhere. And she doesn't want people to know who she is. I think there's a possibility that her dad was more angry about the fucked up car than he's leading on. I think she wanted to get away from an abusive boyfriend. Yeah. Also, he was like, later, this is later, Billy was like convicted of rape or some shit. So he's in jail now. Yeah. So yeah, there's like a lot of theories and there's a lot of information, but then there's not a lot of information. Yeah. Like at the same time. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of information, but you don't know what. What's real, what isn't. Yeah. What's accurate, yep. what's embellished, who's not talking, who's talking too much. Yep. The fact that her friends won't come forward about that party is really suspicious to me. I feel like something happened there that they're not talking about. Yeah. Maybe she told them what her plans were there. And so That's what just, I'm thinking. They just all agreed to not talk about it. Maybe they, she was like, look, I'm going to run away. 
I'll contact you once I get settled and then we can be friends still, but I need you to not tell anybody what's going down. Yeah. Almost and now like these, a... these friends are also in this ID documentary where they're like crying and saying, please come home, Mora. You miss so much. But it's like, I don't know. If you told me you wanted to run away, I'd fucking help you run away. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, depending on how committed they are, like, yeah. you were an acting, a theater major. Look, I am ca-fucking-mitted. Like, it's easy. Like, if you, if you are able to muster together the, like, ability to cry on command, it's super easy. Oh, yeah. To get to that point where you can just do it. Yep. I, I can't cry. Like, if you just said cry right now, I wouldn't be able to. I'd have to, like, focus and, like, get in the get in the zone. Yeah. It but doesn't take could, me much, but... Yeah. But I could get there. Yeah. I just think about, like, Roxy and my mom for too long, and I'll just start crying, so... <laughs> I start thinking about every movie where a dog died. <laughs> but, yeah, that's Maura Murray, man. There's so much more to it than that, too. I... I talked for a while and I barely scraped the surface. Well, like yeah, I, said, I mean, if you're you're talking about a podcast that has over 100 episodes just episodes, on this. Yeah. I was like, look, this Wikipedia page is only like four paragraphs long. This is going to be easy. False. <laughs> oh, whoops. False. <laughs> I also had to have my friend Rick tell me how to say Haverhill. So, because he's from New Hampshire. <laughs> it's, it's spelled like Haverhill. Oh yeah, and there's there's a there's a Haverhill, Massachusetts as well, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's that's what happened, man. And I, Mora, I hope that you are alive and you escaped your what sounds like something of a terrible family. Yeah, that you got help for your eating disorder and that you're doing great. If you had an eating disorder, hope that you, if you had an eating disorder. It. I hope that she got help uh, for her alcoholism for sure. Yeah, that, I, that problem. I don't know. I don't know how much of that is. I'm curious if that was an actual issue. I mean, clearly, if you're drinking and driving, it's an actual issue. But, like, if that was a thing, if it was depression-related, if it was, like, an alcoholism situation. I mean, she's from an Irish Catholic family. Not to stereotypes don't perpetuate themselves. I don't believe all Irish people are alcoholics. But, you know, that's that's a stereotype for a reason. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, I just hope that she's doing well. I hope she's in Quebec just living her best life. Yeah. Nobody look for it. <laughs> if you do have any information um, on Mora and you are uh, you want to help somebody figure out where she is, uh, you can contact the New Hampshire Police Department. They're looking for her. And also uh, her family has a uh, page. I think it's moramurraymissing.org. Um, but you can find that easy enough with a, with a search for her name. Yeah, I always think it's interesting. Like the people who have that high level of commitment to running away yeah like if that is what she did especially when you're 21 like there's a lot of talk about how you know like does a 21 year old have the mental capacity to think through that like you got in trouble because you used a credit card number and had food delivered directly to you yeah like are you smart enough to do that i was like this girl went to like was accepted to west point i don't think she's dumb no I just she's she's book smart, but I don't think that she's like street smart. She's not criminally smart. That was why she made so many like silly mistakes and so many Mm -hmm. silly like decisions because she wasn't thinking like a criminal because she comes from a upper class white family. Right. Exactly. So I hope that you're doing well, Maura. I hope we find you and you are safe and you just want to be left the fuck alone because I get that. (laughs) I do. But thanks for joining us today, everybody, as we discussed these amazing 
and crazy cold cases because I did not expect for this episode to be this long. <laughs> uh, we hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We do want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. So just send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. And if you do have any corrections for me in that case, please tell me. I'm I There's just so much to go through. I could only do so much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> If you're sending a story of your own, we do ask that you put listener story in the subject line so that we can sort through those a little more easily. You can also find us at Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcasts or our personal accounts Roy Rampage and Calamity Casey where we post the weird shit in our personal lives. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy Rampage. We're on Facebook. Just search for the strange and unusual podcast. I have actually started streaming lightly again. Uh, so twitch.tv so <laughs> twitch slash Roya Rampage. Um, also, if you'd like to, you can join us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash strangeunusual, where we have bonus content, we have polls where you can vote on episodes for wh- the content that we cover, uh, a access to our Discord, and different things like that. And a new Patreon episode should be coming out shortly. So excited like for that. I hate it. Um, huh? said y'all are gonna hate it (laughs) it's gross um but we completely understand right now covid is back on the rise black lives still matter and um you know it's a financial time to it's a time a difficult time to make some financial choices like that like supporting a patreon for some randos on the internet so if you can't do that i totally understand we totally understand no just me casey doesn't understand yeah i don't casey understands nothing And, uh, but if you can just like, share, subscribe, review, all that, you know, generic podcast, YouTube sign off stuff. Yep. Um, anything that you can do will really help to get the podcast listened to by more people and continue increasing our listenership, which is really important to us because we do really enjoy doing this. Yeah. And five star reviews will get read on the podcast, even if they're bad. Even if it's just like, I can't believe I have to listen to these two dumb bitches talk for an hour and a half. Five stars. I'm Maura Murray and I wish these motherfuckers didn't talk about me. Five stars. (laughs) (laughs) The axe man from the hottest hell gonna come back. Five stars. (laughs) Hey bitches, I'm back from Tartarus. Five stars. (laughs) You guys don't jazz it. (laughs) I'll jazz it, baby. I'll jazz it, baby. Alright, well, until next time, guys. Bye. Bye! Thank you.